Fellowship Baptist Church family and friends. First of all, I just want to thank you for clicking the link and joining us for the Sunday morning worship service. Uh, welcome, and I'm so glad that you're here uh, with me. I'm, I'm speaking actually to a, an, an empty auditorium with the exception of Dan, who's running the show up in the sound booth. Uh, due to the executive order uh, from this past Monday, uh, it's just me this morning, and uh, so sorry about that. Uh, I'm kind of bummed about it as well, uh, but I do uh, thank you for joining, and I, I just wanted to start off by saying that I think that we have some unique avenues for ministry right now through our church, and, and I'll just point out this, this avenue of getting the message out in this way uh, we have had over 1,000 views uh, to last Sunday morning's worship service. And, and so that's encouraging. And, and let me encourage you to share this one out as well. Uh, share it out through Facebook uh, to your Facebook friends as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. So we're going to jump right, right in today. Um, man, I miss you guys. I, I wish you were here uh, with me in person, but I'm so glad that you've joined in this way. Jumping into the book of Revelation where we left off, our main passage for this morning is Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 9, and I'm going to read them at this time from the English Standard Version as well as put them up on the screen for you so that you can follow along with me as well. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Let's just bow and pray together for just a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation, for this opportunity that we have to study it together. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the cross this morning. We thank you for your great love that compelled you to go to the cross, that you might save us from the consequences of our sin and that you might call us into new life with you. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be with us today. And, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just make the words of this text come alive to us and that we might understand it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So last week we looked at the first three verses, and if you missed the message, uh, you can find that on the Facebook page, the church Facebook page, uh, as well as on our church website at ecfellowship.com. But let me just give you a quick review uh, in case you, you did miss that message. We learned last week in looking at the first three verses in the book of Revelation, we learned that God the Father gave this revelation to the Son, Jesus, who then sent it to an angel, uh, through an angel, I should say, to his servant, John. It, we also saw in verse 3, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, that there's a blessing promised to those who hear the message, to those who obey the message, and to those who proclaim the message. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so important that we hear the message of Revelation, we obey the message of Revelation, and then we proclaim the message? John answers that for us in verse 3. He says, because the time is near. And so we see here in the text that there's an urgency to this. There's an urgency for both the saved to present the gospel... And there is also an urgency for the unsaved to receive the gospel. So both things need to be uh, felt with a sense of urgency. Uh, this week we're going to continue in our study with verses 4 through 8. And we see in verse 4 that the immediate, immediate audience John is addressing are seven churches in Asia. Now, let me just say, in case maybe you've read this before or you've heard this, that in the past, uh, there was a way to interpret the seven churches of Revelation uh, where they were seen as being symbolic. They were symbolically interpreted to refer to seven different church ages or seven different stages in church history. I think that it's very important for me to point out here that this is no longer a popular view at all. This is no longer held by Bible scholars, and, and for good reason. There were many problems with this view, with the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 being seen as seven different ages in church history. There were lots of problems with this that I don't have the time to dive into uh, with you, but if you certainly have questions about that, you can email me or message me on Facebook or text me or call me and, and ask me those questions, and I'd be happy to kind of walk you through why that is no longer the popular view. The evidence argues that Revelation addresses seven literal communities of Christ followers that were centered in seven actual cities. Seven churches spread out across a, a city, each church spread out across the city, probably many different assemblies. I remember at this point in our history, uh, we didn't have buildings. We were meeting in homes. We were meeting in synagogues, uh, but we didn't have churches. And so several different assemblies or communities of believers spread out across seven different actual cities in what was called Asia at this time. Now, Asia was a very common way of addressing the Roman province of Asia Minor. And this would be an area that now we would know as being modern Western Turkey. 
And so when John is giving this revelation at the end of the first century, it's important for us to understand that the church is growing very rapidly throughout this area. The gospel is going forward with power through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his church. People were turning their backs throughout modern Western Turkey, what, what we now consider to be modern Western Turkey, Asia Minor. Uh, they were turning their backs on their idols, and they were turning to Christ for their salvation. It, it must have just been an incredibly exciting time in the church. And, and I want you to see this map. I want you to see the significance of what's happening here. Because John addresses, according to Bible scholars, the church in the most seven prominent and strategic cities in Asia Minor. And I just don't think that we should miss this church. I think there's something important for us to capture here. Ephesus, if you look on the map, Ephesus is the most important city at this time. It's also the closest to the island of Patmos. It's the closest to where John is currently in exile. And in, in a future message, I'll be talking more about his exile and, and why he's there. But that's where John is when he receives this revelation from Jesus Christ and when he sends it out to these seven churches in these seven actual cities. A messenger from John on the island of Patmos would have sailed the 40 miles across the Aegean Sea and from Patmos to Ephesus. And then he would have began his journey on foot. He would have traveled on foot to the other six cities carrying the scroll that contained the revelation. It's really interesting when you look at this map. The order of the seven churches that are listed in chapters 2 through 3, and, and take a moment and just kind of glance through those chapters in your Bible, or you can look at the passages that are on the screen for you, and you see this. The order of the seven churches that are listed in these chapters corresponds to the most logical route that a messenger would have traveled. It's the way it would have made the most sense to go. He doesn't zigzag back and forth, but he kind of forms, well, sort of a circle in, in his travels. The revelation would have been proclaimed to believers, to Christ followers, throughout these seven cities. And then the revelation would have spread out of those cities into the surrounding communities, the small towns, the villages that would have been in the middle of all that, and then to the farthest outreaches of Asia Minor, and then beyond to the other areas where the church existed. The revelation of Christ given to John would have continued to spread. I think there's a divine strategy here. And I don't want to move on from this until we see this. There's a divine strategy that we should learn from this passage. Revelation was first sent to the most strategic cities in the area, knowing that the message would be spread from there. And so the point I want to make as far as modern application today is that the church today needs to be committed to reaching cities. 
It needs to be committed to reaching the centers of influence and, quite frankly, where the greatest number of people are. That needs to be our goal, knowing that when we reach the cities, we'll reach the surrounding communities with the gospel as well. Continuing on with verse 4, John writes, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now let me dissect this with you a little bit. Let me walk you through this verse. Grace here is translated from the Greek word charis. This is a very common Greek greeting. It's, it's similar to how we say hello or greetings or how you doing, right? This is how they would have said uh, hello to each other, grace, charis. And, and erine is the Greek word that we translate into the English word peace, the Hebrew counterpart of this, as probably most of you know, is, is the word shalom. Erene uh, in Greek, shalom in Hebrew. And this would have been a very common Jewish greeting. And so what we need to understand is John, when he's writing, is writing to both Jews and Greeks alike. And this is why the Apostle Paul also often combines these two words in his greeting. The message of the revelation is going out to both the Jews and to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. However, what I find very interesting in this passage in Revelation is that grace and peace do not originate with John. They don't come from him, but they come from who is and who was and who is to come. And so John here with this statement, who is, who was, and who is to come, is referencing God the Father. But then there's a very peculiar phrase next, and the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, what's that all about? This reminds us of an Old Testament passage. Let me point this out to you because I want you to always be thinking as we do this study together in the book of Revelation, I want you to remember what I said last week. So much of the imagery that we will see throughout the book of Revelation comes from the Old Testament. About 70%, 70% of the images we're going to be able to trace back to Old Testament passages. And believe me, I'm going to take those opportunities to show you all of that, it, just like with this one. Uh, this comes from Isaiah 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, from this verse. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I want you to notice that in this verse, Isaiah 11, 2, that the Spirit is described in seven different ways. Go through, take a second, and just count them. Let me point them out to you. First of all, the Spirit's described as being of the Lord. That's number one. The Spirit of wisdom, number two. Of understanding, number three. The Spirit of counsel, number four. Of might, number five of knowledge, number six, and then the fear of the Lord, number seven. Seven different ways that the Spirit is being described here. I would su suggest to you, and, and a lot of Bible scholars tend to agree with me, that we understand seven spirits in Revelation, what we're seeing here, as the sevenfold spirit. 
the sevenfold spirit in this verse. Now, who is that? Who is the sevenfold spirit? There's really only one option for us to consider, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is who this verse in Revelation is referencing. And then what makes this really interesting is when we look at verse 5, and we read, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, when we look at verses 4 and 5 together, what we see is that John is sending along grace and peace that to the seven churches from all three members of the Trinity. What John is saying is the grace and peace doesn't, it doesn't originate with me, but it comes from the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I think that's so powerful when we see that in the text. The way John describes Jesus here, I think, is so important for you to notice, too. I'm still in verse 5. When we look at verse 5 and we look at the way that he describes Jesus, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of, of kings on earth. I'm, I'm going to unpack each of those for you in just a second. But I want to point out that this, to me, reminds me of the opening of John's gospel. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when he very clearly describes the deity of Jesus Christ. And don't miss this on the screen. Look at this passage. This is from the very beginning of John's Gospel, where he writes, In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus Christ here. He says, In the beginning was the Word. The Greek word is logos, truth. In the beginning was the Word. And that Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Right? This is how John describes Jesus in his gospel. But in our passage for this morning, in verse 5, John uses three very descriptive phrases about Jesus that would have really been an encouragement to the Christians he was writing to. And, and, and believe me, in the coming weeks, we're going to unpack why that is as we get into chapters 2 and 3. But these words about Jesus would have been so encouraging to them. He describes Christ in three ways. First of all, he calls Jesus the faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who had testified to the truth. Like so many in John's original audience, Christians, Christ followers, in all of these seven churches were, were standing faithfully and testifying to the truth of the gospel. And, and they were doing that in, in an effort to be like Christ himself. And many of these Christ followers in the early church were suffering for this testimony, like Jesus had suffered for this testimony. So first of all, John says that Jesus is the faithful witness. Second of all, he describes Christ as being the firstborn of the dead. And this is so important as well, because it's his resurrection from the dead that would give the Christians that John is writing to hope that if, if they were to die, 
because of their testimony for Christ. If they were to be martyred for their faith, if Christ raised, they also would, would be risen as well. And their loved ones who had already passed on would also rise. So Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. But John describes Jesus in one more way. He says Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. And, and this is so important. And we'll, we'll kind of circle back to this in a little bit. But Jesus reigns over all of the kingdoms of the earth. But then John goes on, if we continue on with the passage for now, John goes on to talk about three works of Jesus. He describes him in three ways, the three ways we just went through, but he also talks about three works of Christ next. First of all, he says that Jesus loves us, and, and that is comforting. It's so comforting to all of us, but especially to those who are in the midst of suffering and of persecution. And, and how did Christ love us? Well, that's the second work. The second work, John says, Jesus loves us in that he has freed us from our sins by his blood. His love for us is no better expressed, church, than by the shedding of his blood for us. And, and here I'll just remind you of probably the best known verse in the Bible. It's one that so many of us memorized when we were young, and it's such a powerful verse that communicates the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the apostle Paul will also testify to this in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, where Paul writes and he says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So first of all, Jesus loves us. Second, Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. But there's a third thing that John says that Jesus did for us here in these verses. Third, Jesus made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And this also was motivated by his love. And I think it's so important for us to see this, church. Don't miss this. Salvation is being saved from something, and salvation is being saved for something. Now, if you're taking notes at home, that's a sentence you should have written down. So I'm going to say it again so you have that chance. Make sure you have a pencil and a piece of paper, because here we go. Salvation is being saved from something. Salvation is being saved for something. The love of Jesus motivated him to give his life to set, us, to set us free from the captivity of our sin and our punishment. We always talk about that, and it's a beautiful truth. Christ's love drove him to the cross. It motivated him to go to the cross to die for us, to take the penalty of our sin so that we would be set free from our sin. But the love of Jesus also motivated him to save us so that we might become something, so that we might become citizens of his kingdom. 
those who would worship God for all of eternity, that we would become priests in the kingdom of God to God the Father. And it would seem that this is the thought, the thought that launches now John into worship at the end of verse 6. He's thinking about this and what Christ did for us on the cross, that it was his love that drove him to the cross to free us from our sin and to cause us to become priests to God for all of eternity. And he just erupts in worship. I love these moments in scripture where we see this. It's almost like the, the biblical human author can't contain himself. He said, when I think about this, this is my reaction to him, to Jesus, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then John makes a beautiful promise. This is a promise, church, that would have greatly encouraged the believers he was writing to. Jesus is returning. He's coming back to set everything right. It must have been so exciting for them to hear these words spoken for the first time. Imagine yourself at the church of Ephesus and you're hearing this revelation proclaimed by the elders of the church and they come to this verse, verse 7. Behold, he, Jesus, there's no doubt who John's talking about here. Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John's original audience, hearing this promise, would have thought of similar statements in the Old Testament. There's the Old Testament again. We're going to keep coming back to it. Jesus coming in the clouds would have certainly reminded them of this verse. This verse in the book of Daniel, where Daniel writes, I, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And those who pierced Jesus, the other part of verse 7 in Revelation 1, uh, seeing, seeing him, those who pierced him, that they saw him and that they would mourn, would remind them of this verse in the prophet prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10, this great uh, minor prophet book in the Old Testament where it's written, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me and the one that they have pierced and, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And so certainly, church, they would have understood John's words in Revelation 1-7 about Christ's return as the very fulfillment of biblical prophecy. They would have seen this promise that Jesus is coming back as the fulfillment of these verses in the Old Testament. And then God speaks directly in verse 8, and I love this. I love this verse because God actually interjects, and it's not John speaking here, but it's Jesus, or it's, it's God the Father speaking here. And he says, I am, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Oh, I, I just need to show you some things in this verse because it's so powerful. First of all, alpha. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. 
The triune God, what, what's being communicated here when God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The triune God is the first and the last. He's Lord over time. He is Lord over all of history. He holds history in his hands, the present and the future. Now just think of how encouraging this would have been to the original audience, to Christians who were suffering under the Roman emperor, Christians who were being persecuted for their faith, to hear, that, to hear God say, I'm the first and the last, I'm the alpha and the omega, history is in my hands. Nothing is going to happen to you apart from my plan. The people of God didn't need to be afraid. Why? Because the triune God holds the entire universe in his hands. He holds time in his hands. The Greek word John uses at the very end of the verse also is very powerful here, where he calls God, or where God says about himself, I am the Almighty. This is a very important word for us to understand because it's the Greek word pantocrator. And it is best translated almighty in English, all-powerful, the almighty one, the pantocrator. It's a very big word in Greek. And many times, many times will God be referenced to in this way throughout Revelation. We're going to see this many different times as we study through this book, that pantocrator is used, the almighty. God is the almighty. Why is God referenced in this way? Well, certainly because it's the truth. Certainly because it's a wonderful way for God to refer to himself because he is the Almighty. But for John's original audience, don't miss this, believers who are suffering under Caesar, suffering under a human emperor, the emperor of Rome, and he's persecuting them, this would have provided a lot of strength and courage. You see, the Greek word translated into English, into the English word emperor, is autocrator. Autocrator. That's not quite as powerful as pantocrator. You see, the human emperor had a certain amount of power over the territory that he controls. But the pantocrator, the almighty, is in control of the entire cosmos. Caesar might have had authority over his empire, but the triune God rules the cosmos. That's where I want to stop for this week. So what I want to do for our last few minutes together is maybe help you draw some, some points of application from this passage. We are going to see throughout this study John writing as a pastor John is very pastoral in the way he writes the book of Revelation. I think it's interesting because so often people turn to the book of Revelation almost solely for biblical prophecy, to, to try to figure out when is everything going to happen and how is it going to happen. And, and like I mentioned last week, they do their timelines and their charts and their graphs. And listen, church, John is writing this. He's he's received this message from God the Father through Jesus, through the angel, and now he's passing it on to these seven churches. And he's writing as a pastor with a dual purpose. And here, I think, very clearly says what John's purpose is in writing this book. And I want you to have this 
firmly in your thinking as we study this together. John wants to do two things. He wants to encourage suffering believers, and John wants to exhort complacent believers. He wants to encourage people who are suffering, and he wants to kind of stoke up and exhort and get complacent believers moving. Moving toward what? Moving toward fulfilling the Great Commission, to doing something in the kingdom. And that's his goal in, in sharing this revelation out to these cities. Now, there's going to be a lot that we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 on the second one of those statements. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat that one to death in the coming weeks as we study through the letters to the seven churches. So let me just focus with you on that first statement as we close this morning. John wants to encourage suffering believers. All believers at some point are going to face death unless we are here on earth when Christ returns. But other than that, we will face death. Hebrews 9.27 states, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Also, we need to understand that those who truly follow after Jesus those who are actively sharing their faith, they're, they're trying to live for Christ. Another truth is in, in Scripture. That's the 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think, church, our passage this morning in Revelation chapter 1 offers suffering Christ followers assurance. Assurance that in the end, everything is going to be okay. Even though it's true that all of us will die if we're not still alive when Christ returns, and, and even though it's true that if we're trying to live a righteous life in Christ while we're on this earth and we're trying to fulfill the Great Commission and to get the gospel message out to our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers and doing those things that we know Christ wants us to do. We know that we are going to face persecution. John wants to say, listen, in the end, it's going to be okay. Be comforted by this. And, and so I, I just want to offer these two truths to you in closing that I think come out of this passage that we studied this morning very clearly. First of all, God is in control. God is in control. We will see that as we study the letters to the church in, in Smyrna and to the church of Philadelphia in, in the weeks to come, that these believers faced real persecution. But God is both the beginning and the end. He is the Almighty. He's sovereign over the cosmos. And nothing can happen to us that is apart from his plan. So the first thing we need to firmly understand is that God is in control. Second of all, Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. God is in control and Jesus is right by our side. He's in us and we're in him. He loves us and he will help us. Believers who are suffering, believers who are suffering need to be reminded of these truths. And so John is writing to remind the Christians 
uh, in these seven cities of these wonderful truths. These verses in Revelation chapter 1 that we looked at today reminded the original audience, and they remind us today because they're just as applicable for us. They remind us of Jesus and his cross. In church, the cross makes all of the difference. Jesus is the one who loved us so much that he became a man. He died on a cross and he freed us from our sins by his blood. And when we suffer, the cross of Christ assures us that God is with us. He loves us and he will help us. Never ever forget, church, what Paul says to the Romans. This wonderful verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We may see that, this verse, become a reality in our lifetime, or we may see it become a reality in heaven one day. But this is the word of God. It's a promise of God that we can trust in and we can depend on. Would you bow your heads and let's, let's pray together as we close this morning. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I thank you for this time of teaching it uh, to my church family and friends. And Lord, I just pray that we all would just embrace these truths that we see from these verses in Revelation chapter 1. That we would be assured of this morning that you are in control. God, you're the Almighty. And no matter what happens in our world, no matter what changes happen in our community, and we're certainly living in the midst today of some pretty radical change in the way our communities function. But God, we know that you are the Almighty. You're in control. And we are trusting in that this morning. And, and God, I also pray that we would be assured of this morning that we would embrace and lean in to this idea, Jesus, that you are with us, that you love us, and that you will help us. The cross is the greatest assurance, the greatest testimony of your love for us. So Jesus, I just pray that as we go throughout this week and, and we interact with people, may your love for us flow through us. Because you've loved us, may we love you. Because you've loved us, may we know how to love the people around us. And Jesus, I pray this for myself. I pray this for my family. And God, I pray this for my church family. And it's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen. Church, I just want to thank you for joining us for the study this week. Uh, plan on joining me again next Sunday morning. Uh, I want to say to you that God loves you. Fellowship Baptist Church loves you. Uh, I miss you guys. I cannot wait for this room to be full again and for everyone to be here. It's kind of strange preaching to an empty room right now, but I know that I know that you're out there. And God loves you. Fellowship loves you. Stay healthy. Uh, Blessings to your families, and, and I just can't wait till we're all back together again. Have a great day.